Case S01E01, Derek Bentley. It's the 2nd of November, 1952. We are just south of London, in a large town called Croydon. It's been an unseasonably wet winter, and right now it's around 9pm at night. But despite the darkness and the winter weather, two teenagers are walking up Tamworth Road. One is Chris Craig, aged 16. The other is Derek Bentley, aged 19. They stop outside of Barlow and Parker's wholesale shop and warehouse. Their intention is to burgle the warehouse for money, goods, whatever they can find. Both are armed. Craig is carrying a revolver with a shortened barrel and several undersized revolver rounds, and he has given Bentley a sheath knife and a spiked knuckle duster. After checking the scene, they scramble over the fence and begin climbing a drain pipe that runs up the side of the building to the rooftop. It's a tense climb, some 30 feet to the top. A fall could easily kill. Unbeknown to them, in the houses opposite, a nine-year-old girl has been staring out of her window and she has seen them. She tells her parents and her father runs to the nearest phone box and calls the police. Within minutes, officers arrive and surround the building. The police begin shouting at the two to come back down. Instead, Craig and Bentley hide behind the lift housing on the roof and Craig even starts to yell abuse and taunts at the officers. As this is going on, Detective Sergeant Frederick Fairfax begins climbing the drain pipe. Once on the roof, he makes a grab for Bentley and briefly captures him, but Bentley wrenches free and escapes. On the ground, the police are trying to get inside Barlow and Parker's. Their intention is to find the stairs that lead up the lift shaft and exit at the housing on the rooftop the same lift housing that Bentley and Craig have put between themselves and the police. At this point in the story, back on the rooftop, controversy sets in about precisely what happens next. Accounts from the police and the teenagers differ in a crucial detail. According to statements given by the police, Fairfax tells Craig to hand over the gun, lad. Bentley shouts, let him have it, Chris. In response, Craig shoots at Detective Sergeant Fairfax, hitting him in the shoulder. Later in court, both Craig and Bentley will strenuously deny that this phrase was ever uttered. However, we will deal with this controversy in due time. Back in the midst of what is now a gunfight, injured and at risk of being shot again, Fairfax makes a desperate move. He lunges and he manages to grab Bentley again, and this time he isn't letting go. Fairfax will later be awarded the George Cross, the UK's second highest honour, given for most conspicuous courage in circumstance of extreme danger. Now in custody, Bentley is entirely compliant. He tells Fairfax about the extra ammunition that Craig has for the gun, and he makes no attempt to use either the sheath knife or the knuckle duster that Craig gave him. On the ground, the police who have been struggling in the dark and the cold against the locked windows and doors have finally managed to get inside. A group of them are racing up the stairs. Craig is still shooting wildly. It is now around 15 minutes after Bentley supposedly shouted at Craig to let him have it. The first officer to burst out of the lift housing door and onto the roof is police constable Sidney Miles. Craig kills PC Miles with a single shot to the head. As the officers take cover, 
Craig continues shooting until finally his rounds are spent. He is now cornered. There is no safe way down. He can choose handcuffs and the mercy of the officers he has just taunted, shot at and possibly even killed, or he can take another way out. Turning, Craig runs and leaps off the roof. As I've said, it is a 30-foot fall, 10 metres straight down, and he crashes onto a glass greenhouse. Incredibly, Craig survives the impact, but he is badly injured. He will later be found to have a fractured spine and a broken left wrist. For the police, however, the incident is now under control. The shooting is over, and both Craig and Bentley are in custody. Craig is taken to the hospital, and Bentley is taken to the police station. There, he gives a statement. A month after the failed burglary, on the 9th to the 11th of December 1952, both teenagers are tried for murder. Even though Craig pulled the trigger, even though Bentley was under arrest when PC Miles was killed, and even though this death occurred around 15 minutes after Bentley's alleged shout of, let him have it, Chris, after only 75 minutes of deliberation, the jury finds both Craig and Bentley guilty of the murder of PC Sidney Miles. Because he is only 16 years old, Craig is classed as a minor. The maximum penalty that can be imposed upon him is a jail sentence at what is known as Her Majesty's Pleasure. He will finally be released in 1963 after serving 11 years. However, at 19 years old, Bentley is over the age of majority. He can be given the most severe penalty available under English law and in 1952, for murder, this was the death sentence. This news breaks across the country to widespread dismay. Bentley lodges an appeal. Politicians submit signed memoranda disputing the verdict. The public protest the trial outcome. Bentley's father makes a desperate visit to the Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife. The Home Secretary has the power to recommend that a death sentence be commuted into life imprisonment. However, Fife is concerned that the victim was a police officer and what message might be sent if he is seen to interfere in due legal process. In the end, all of these efforts are to no avail. On the 28th of January, 1953, outside of the walls of Wandsworth Prison, there is a public protest so volatile that it results in arrests, assaults and property damage. Inside the prison grounds, however, events move inexorably forward. And at 9am, 19-year-old Derek Bentley is hanged. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistic cases, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading, at the blog. The web address is given at the end of the podcast. Derek Bentley was born on the 30th of June 1933. He was just six when the Second World War started, and by the time he reached that fateful night in November in 1952, the night of the failed burglary, he had already had a difficult life. As a child, during a World War II bombing, a house that Bentley was sheltering inside collapsed on him. Some accounts suggest that Bentley suffered severe head injuries, but whether this is true or not, a range of medical and cognitive tests administered to Bentley through his life suggest that he had developmental problems. At the age of 11, in 1944, Bentley failed his 11-plus examinations. Four years later, in 1948, aged 14, he is found guilty of theft 
and sentenced to three years in Kingswood Approved School. This was a form of school that was effectively back then a form of juvenile detention. It is here that he first meets Christopher Craig. Whilst at the school in December of 1948, the then 15-year-old Bentley is diagnosed with a mental age of 10 years and 6 months and a reading age of 4 years and 6 months. In case you are not familiar with how well a four-year-old reads, the answer is not particularly well. A child of this age might recognise some, perhaps most, of the letters of the alphabet, and they might even be able to read a very few short words. A really gifted child might be able to read extremely simple sentences. Benley also scores 66 on an IQ test. Only 2% have a score this low in the population, and only 1% score lower. At the age of 16, Bentley is diagnosed with epilepsy and another EEG, an electroencephalograph or a brain scan, shortly afterwards returns an abnormal reading. After serving only two years of his sentence at Kingswood, now aged 17, Bentley is released and he has apparently been so traumatised by his time there that he spends the rest of the year as a recluse. Finally, almost a year later, in 1951, he manages to secure employment with a furniture removal business. A few months later, he undergoes a medical exam for national service, but he is found to be unfit for military service because he is, in quote marks, mentally substandard. In March of 1952, aged 18, he quits his furniture removal job after hurting his back. A couple of months later in May, he is hired as a waste collector, but only two months after that, just after his 19th birthday, he is demoted to street cleaning, and finally, in September, he is sacked for unsatisfactory performance. As the winter of 1952 sets in, Bentley finds himself unemployed, with no income, with few prospects and an early track record for struggling with both school and work. In Brixton Prison, only a few weeks later, he will be diagnosed with a mental age of 11 or 12. So with all of these details in mind, it can be easy to see why the idea of accompanying his friend on a warehouse burglary might have appealed to Bentley. Part of the evidence used to convict Bentley was linguistic in nature. There are two parts to this. The first is the ambiguity of Bentley's alleged shout of let him have it, Chris. If we believe that this sentence was ever uttered, was Bentley urging Craig to kill? Or was he urging him to surrender the gun? We're going to return to this issue later because the conclusion of the other part of the linguistic evidence has an impact on how we should interpret this part of the evidence. So the second part of the linguistic evidence involves a key sentence in the statement that Bentley supposedly dictated to the police shortly after being arrested. If you remember, he was taken into custody, taken to the station, and he allegedly gave a statement very shortly after that. Now, in the 23rd sentence of this statement, the police claim that Bentley said to them, I did not know he was going to use the gun. What's the issue here? Well, it will sound trivial and pedantic, but it revolves around the use of the word, the. Imagine I say to you, have you seen the eclipse? Notice how the sentence effectively asserts that there is an eclipse, a specific one, maybe even one that's happening right now. The existence of the eclipse is given as uncontroversial information that we both apparently accept. It has the air of definiteness, and all of this background information is carried by the definite article, that tiny, inconspicuous word, the. By contrast, imagine that I'd actually said to you, have you seen an eclipse? Now it's completely different. 
there's no longer a specific eclipse in mind. It certainly doesn't sound like an eclipse is necessarily happening right now. And the indefinite article, the a or an, as its name suggests, is introducing a really strong sense of the indefinite into the sentence. So compare, have you seen the eclipse? Have you seen an eclipse? Quite different sentences and only a tiny change in word. The prosecution's argument rested on the idea that by using the definite article, by saying the gun, Bentley had inadvertently revealed the fact that he actually really did have prior knowledge that Craig had a gun. Their position was that had he been genuinely unaware of it, he would have used the indefinite article and he would have said, I did not know he was going to use a gun. The importance of this argument is easy to overlook, so at the risk of going into too much detail, I'm going to spell it out a bit more. If Bentley had not known about the gun, he could not as easily be accessory to murder or, in a very odd twist of English law at that time, co-murderer, if you like, of PC Miles. In fact, they might have had to drop his charges down substantially, perhaps only to attempted burglary, a crime for which there is certainly no death sentence. So you have to take the background of the case into account as to why this charge for murder might be so important. Remember, an officer of the law has been shot. There is almost certainly a lot of personal grievance involved in the case. It would have been so easy for some of those involved to start to develop tunnel vision, to want an eye for an eye, or in this case, a life for a life. They would never be able to hang Craig for PC Mouse's death, even though he was the one who pulled the trigger. As I've said, as a minor, he simply cannot be given the death sentence. But Bentley is not safe. If he could be convicted of the higher level offence of murder, he could hang for it. And for some, this is going to seem like the only kind of justice for the death of PC Miles. The prosecution then laboured this argument hard. They really pushed the jury to believe that Bentley was indeed a knowing co-conspirator and therefore a fellow murderer. So much rests on tiny matters of linguistics. Bentley's life is beginning to depend upon some of the smallest words in the English language. But how faithful was this statement? Remember, Bentley was said to have dictated it to the police in the hours after the shooting, so for a moment it's worth considering how police in the 1950s collected verbal evidence. Firstly, the police did not have quite the same reputation for exemplary levels of fairness and thoroughness that they have today. As in many countries, police brutality was certainly not unheard of, but more than this, in some forces there was a toxic culture between officers where status was scored by counting who had the most coughs, that is, which officer could get the most confessions, referred to colloquially as getting somebody to cough up to something. This was before the advent of video cameras and the legal requirements to record all interviews from start to finish or the interview becomes inadmissible. It was also before many laws came into place regarding the fair and humane treatment of suspects. The process of being interviewed back then could be extremely unpleasant and many suspects later argued that they had given confessions under duress and sometimes under extreme duress. There was a period of crisis across several forces where countless confessions were either subsequently recanted or found to be false in the light of further evidence. Britain's police forces would eventually introduce the PEACE model, literally P-E-A-C-E. -E. I've put a link to this in the case notes. Uh, the PEACE model of interviewing suspects and witnesses in 1984. And this approach, uh, which is collaborative and much more cooperative in nature, has proven eminently more successful in producing high quality information from interviewees. So much so that it has now been adopted in various forms across a number of countries around the world. 
But at the time of this case, we're in the 1950s, such enlightened ideas are 30 years away into the future. In short, we can't know for sure, but Bentley is not likely to have found his treatment at the hands of the police to be especially friendly. Any issues of coercion aside, what was the actual process for taking statements supposed to look like, on paper anyway? Well, in the 1950s, police procedure for collecting verbal evidence could take two directions. On the one hand, the police could conduct an interview, and this is a dialogue. So the officers were firstly required to write down their own questions longhand. And this was obviously before the modern technology of tape recorders and so forth. And then, in the same way, they would write down the suspect's answers word for word directly underneath those questions. On the other hand, they could take a statement, or that is, a monologue. The suspect could either write this themselves, if they were literate, obviously, or they could dictate it to an officer who would write it out for them. The catch with this form of verbal evidence is that the officers were not to ask substantive questions. So they could say, you know, can you repeat yourself or could you slow down a bit? But they couldn't probe, direct, interrogate, or at least they shouldn't be otherwise steering the statement. It's worth noting here that whilst in Brixton prison awaiting trial, Dr Matheson, the principal medical officer, took a detailed history from Bentley. Dr Matheson noted that Bentley cannot even recognise or write down all the letters of the alphabet. In other words, Bentley is almost entirely illiterate, so he would not have been able to write his own statements, but crucially, he would not have been able to read or check the accuracy of one written on his behalf. At the trial, three officers swore that Bentley's statement was of this second type, that it was an unaided monologue, that it was dictated to an officer who then wrote it out faithfully, word for word. Bentley, however, asserted that his statement was at least partially an interview-style dialogue. He said that questions had been put to him, and when he had given the answers, the words had been turned into a statement accredited to him as a monologue. So, for instance, an officer might have asked him, did you know he was going to use the gun? Bentley would have replied, no. And the officer would have written down, I did not know he was going to use the gun. You can see the problem here. Bentley's life is currently in the balance over his supposed use of the word the. But what if this was never his word in the first place? What if it belonged to an officer? Despite Bentley's protests, the statement was admitted in court and it was taken to represent Bentley's exact words as spoken in the hours after the shooting. So does Bentley's argument have any merit? Is this, in fact, not a faithful account of his statement? Well, within it, we can actually find some evidence to support his claims. It's only a short document, 588 words or 44 sentences, and you can find the whole thing in the case notes at the blog, but I'll read some select parts of it now. Whilst listening to this, remember, it's supposedly been dictated by someone with a mental age of 10 or 11 and a reading age of around four years and six months. Chris Craig and I then caught a bus to Croydon. We got off at West Croydon and then walked down the road where the toilets are. I think it is Tamworth Road. When we came to the place where you found me, Chris looked in the window. There was a little iron gate at the side. Chris then jumped over and I followed. Chris then climbed up the drain pipe to the roof and I followed. Up to then, Chris had not said anything. We both got out onto the flat roof at the top. Then someone in a garden on the opposite side shone a torch up towards us. Chris said, it's a copper, hide behind here. 
We hid behind a shelter arrangement on the roof. We were there waiting for about 10 minutes. I did not know he was going to use the gun. A plain clothes man climbed up the drain pipe and onto the roof. The man said, I am a police officer, the place is surrounded. He caught hold of me and as we walked away, Chris fired. There was nobody else there at the time. The policeman and I then went round a corner by a door. A little later, the door opened and a policeman in uniform came out. Chris fired again then and the policeman fell down. I could see that he was hurt as a lot of blood came from his forehead just above his nose. The policeman dragged him round the corner behind the brickwork entrance to the door. I remember I shouted something, but I forgot what it was. So there's a little bit that comes before this excerpt and a little bit that comes after, but as I said, you can read the rest of it in the case notes if you're interested. So within this statement, what might we focus on to question its veracity? Well, one of the most prominent features, to a linguist at least, is the use of the temporal then. In fact, then actually occurs 11 times in this statement. Now, initially, you would be forgiven for thinking, well, yes, of course it does. He's recounting a chronological sequence of events. It's very useful to put in little linguistic markers that make the ordering of the events as clear as possible. Then is an excellent, very simple way of achieving this. But when we look at other genuinely monologic witness statements, we start to see how odd the frequency of this word is. As part of a later appeal, forensic linguist Malcolm Coulthard undertook a formal analysis of Bentley's statement and compared it with two other sets of data. On the one hand, he gathered three ordinary witness statements, so one from a woman in the Bentley case and two from men in unrelated cases, and this came to some 930 words. And on the other hand, he gathered three statements by police officers, two from the Bentley case and one from an unrelated case, and this came to some 2,270 words. Additionally, as an external measure, he also compared Bentley's statement with CoBuild. This is a giant data set, and within it, there is around 1.5 million words of spoken English. Now, in the current legal climate, in the 2018s, 1920s, where we are right now, standards of evidence and proof are climbing ever higher, and rightly so. If we were to apply today's standards of evidence to this, we could poke several holes in the data sets, but remember, research has moved on quite a bit since this was done. So issues that you might look at with these data sets and maybe want to challenge and develop further would be, they're all very tiny. So it would be nice if we had larger data sets, the same kinds of things, but much bigger, so that we can just check and make sure there's no anomalous uh, phenomena going on here that is spoiling our results. Another issue would be that if the police interfered in Bentley's statement, what's to say that these other witness statements have not also been tampered with? So if this practice was going on more broadly, then you might actually just now have a corpus of other tampered statements that you're comparing with Bentley's. Another issue would be that different officers might have very different styles, and the three police officers that Coulthard chose for his police data set might not reflect whoever supposedly interfered with Bentley's statement. And there are other issues besides, but I want to stress that this was one of the earliest recorded uses, if not the earliest, of forensic linguistics being used in the courtroom. And with continued practice, inevitably, there have been huge advances and improvements, both in the field of forensic linguistics and in the field of corpus linguistics. So even though there are these limitations that these days we might really tackle and try to improve, even with those in mind, Coulthard found some very compelling results that I think are really worth taking note of.
The short version of Coulthard's results is that, on average, Bentley uses the word then 19 times in every thousand words. Doesn't mean much by itself, but when we start to contrast it with the other corpora, we start to see some interesting findings. So in the ordinary witness statements, they only produce the word then around once every thousand words. So 19 times per thousand for Bentley, only once per thousand times for the witnesses. And when you contrast that with the police statements, they are using then around 13 times per thousand words. So the frequency of then in Bentley statements is much more like the police data set than the witness data set. Now this is interesting, but it is not enough by itself. And had this appeal been lodged just on this basis alone, I suspect it would have struggled. But Coulthard found more. He found something else happening with the word then that's really important. I'm just going to take a few examples from this statement. So, sentence eight, I then ran out after them. Eleven, I then caught a bus to Croydon. Fifteen, Chris then jumped over. Sixteen, Chris then climbed up. Twenty-eight, I then went round a corner by a door. Thirty, Chris fired again then. Thirty-eight, the policeman then pushed me down the stairs. What's going on here? Well, it's something called post-positioning. The then is occurring after the subject, and this construction is actually pretty unusual. In casual, comfortable conversation, we are much more likely to say, then I. So, then I went round the corner, and then I caught the bus, and then I went to the shops, and so on. We are far less likely to say, I then went round the corner, and I then caught the bus, and I then went to the shop. It's actually quite uncomfortable for me to speak like that. It's really odd. So, Coulthard actually noted that in co-build, this data set of 1.5 million words of spoken English, then I, the the prepositioning, the comfortable version, occurs 10 times more often than I then, this unusual post-position construction. What's more... This post-positioning never occurs in the witness dataset that Coulthard looks at, but it occurs nine times in the police dataset. So in short, this really high frequency of the use of then and its unusual post-positioning turns out to be a particular feature of the police officer's written register. So when police officers are trained on how to take verbal evidence and how to ensure that the sequence of events is preserved and made clear, this is one of the strategies that is used. The fact that we find so much evidence of this police register in Bentley's statement certainly casts some serious doubts over its status as this unaided, verbatim account of the events of that night. In short, the evidence suggests that at the very least, the police have substantially interfered with Bentley's statement, presumably to ensure that it said whatever they needed it to say. This takes us back to sentence 23, where Bentley supposedly said, the gun. We now have compelling evidence to suggest that this definite article was never Bentley's word in the first place. And if you cannot trust the officer's claims, made under oath, that Bentley's statement was a faithful account of his words, remember three officers swore that this was a faithful account of his words, if you can't trust that statement, can you trust their assertion that Bentley shouted, let him have it, Chris? Remember, this is an aspect of the case that Chris Craig continues to deny to this day. Bentley's family spend the next 45 years campaigning for justice. Their aim was to have the guilty verdict quashed and Bentley fully pardoned. In the 1970s, when Bentley's parents pass away, his sister continues the fight. In July of 1993, Bentley's family achieve a royal pardon. 
This is not a legal pardon, however. It is effectively a way of saying, you are forgiven by the Crown, rather than saying, we no longer believe that you were guilty. Unsurprisingly, this is not enough, and Bentley's family carry on with their campaign. However, in 97, Bentley's sister, Iris, dies of cancer. Undeterred, her daughter Maria takes up the fight. As part of the appeal, Malcolm Coulthard's forensic linguistics analysis is presented, and his view that Bentley's statement has been interfered with by the police is taken into consideration. Then, in 1998, when the case is reviewed further, after criticising his predecessor's summing up, Lord Chief Justice allows the appeal. Finally, on the 30th of July, 1998, 45 years after his execution, Derek Bentley's conviction for murder is quashed, and he is fully pardoned. On Clare is entirely researched, narrated and produced by me, Dr Clare Hardacre. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior effort of many others. You can find acknowledgements, references, sources and citations for those people at my blog. Also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and much more besides. The address for the Enclair blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash Enclair, all one word. Or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore Enclair. Or if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter as well at Dr. Claire H. <laughs>